right, let's get rocking. Randall, we're back for part four of Sheck Exley. The deepest dive. And his deepest dive. Remember uh, when we last left off? Ned and Sheck were just getting ready to hit the road for spring break, climbing into his old red Ford van and going to make that 1,500-mile trek out to Ciudad Monte in the middle of Nowhereville, Mexico. It's a long road trip. That is a long road trip. That's, uh, yeah, going to take a few hours. Yeah, like you and I have made that mega road trip from Detroit all the way down to North Florida, High Springs area for some cave diving road trips. But that's, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a big fifteen-hour road trip. That's a thousand, a, a thousand miles. You know, I mean, fifteen mile, fifteen hours with if you got pedal to the pedal to the metal and you you, you stop at a rest area jump back in and, and really never stop it's 15 hours and that's a thousand little over a thousand miles so it's a it's a full day anyway ned brings us back in by saying after leaving swanee high school Sheck drove to his home located a few miles outside of live oak He had purchased this particular piece of land a few years back because less than 200 feet behind his back door, a sinkhole opened into the world's largest aquifer system. I was sitting on the front porch of his double wide, surrounded by cameras and scuba equipment. When the van pulled through the gate, a loud greeting preceded Sheck out of the van. Tepesquintle, que pasa? Not bad. Uh, uh, That's my, not uh, bad. my Spanish is uh, getting better. Short on cash and civilization, Ned says, we found ourselves eating from a limited wildlife menu at a cheap Mayan restaurant located just off the Esheray coast. The bill of fare consisted of lobster, grouper, venison, and tepesquintle. ¿Qué es tepesquintle? Sheck asked the young boy waiting our table. From what could be deciphered from his mumbled answer, we gathered that it was a small animal hunted in the jungle. In a moment of daring, we both ordered Tepesquintle and Pepsi. Although the exotic entree had been disguised by preparation and cooking, our serving suspiciously resembled skinned wharf rat done to perfection <laughs> and served in a green mole sauce, except that on the ends of their small muscular legs were sets of tiny hooves. It's like a little like prairie uh, 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 gopher kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, it's like prairie a dog. prairie rat pig of sorts. <laughs> it's a rodent, just like a... Just like a groundhog is. Next time you think you're getting carnitas, <laughs> you're probably getting. I want you, a I want you to remember the tepesquintle. Mmm, <laughs> it's muy bueno. That's a good nickname, tepesquintle. Sheck came up the porch and we shook hands. <laughs> Donde es el baño, tepesquintle? I followed him into his darkened living room, where I almost tripped over a five-foot. Aquazep underwater propulsion scooter that dominated the center position in a room filled with charts, files, books, and an 
assortment of unmarried man clutter. Unmarried man clutter. That's uh, that's almost derogatory. Isn't it like uh, that's what these women do to us? I we don't get, think we no, get no. married. Remember, right. now I've got my one little office where where Patty's not allowed to yell at me about how I've got tons of like stupid art on the wall and skulls and hard hats and dive regulators and books everywhere. It's my spot. But remember back in your like young unmarried man days, it's all a man needs. <laughs> in the kitchen, he shoved papers aside, sat down, and began to intently study a neatly spaced three-column list he had taken from his pocket. Each item represented a vital link necessary for the completion of the most daring and logistically complicated scuba dive ever attempted. After nine months planning, nothing was going to be forgotten in a last-minute rush <laughs> to leave town. I've, I've heard this and said this before. <laughs> I've been in this exact same position, and something will be left. That's just all there is to it. Whether it's something of consequence, though, is that's the question. Whether it's, you know... Your favorite fins that you left, or your dry suit undergarment that you left. <laughs> just uh, just passing Corpus Christi. Hey, uh, where's uh, where's my sunglasses? <laughs> Son of a bitch! My prescription sunglasses. I gotta have my prescription sunglasses. Yeah. Turn around. I mean, technically, he's probably not leaving with as much as we leave for a trip down to Florida. You know, between cameras and computers and lights and backups. I know he's got a few, but. Uh, he's got a van and 40 cylinders. Right. That's taking up most of the. Yeah. That's going to take up most of the space because I don't believe there's a dive shop around there where you can just uh, go get a fill. And I don't think they took. I mean, it doesn't sound like they took their own compressor. So. No, they got the old, they got the old Ford van loaded, loaded to the gills. Uh, he's got a van and forty cylinders, and hopefully no burst disco, nothing like that. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a logistical juggernaut. It is a juggernaut. That's a great great term for this. This this reminds me of a cave trip in the early two thousands. With a couple of buddies, and we had that corner room at the High Springs. I keep wanting to say the High High Springs Country Inn or something to that effect. What was it? Across from the diner. Yeah, I know the I can picture it in my head. But anyway, I, I never stayed there. We were in the corner room, and we had brought a trailer full, three of us. So, a couple sets of twins each, a couple O two forties each. I think four stages each. So we had we had all our in the. The trailer was open, so we brought everything into that room in the evening, all the tanks and everything. And we had driven all day, the straight shot through. Got there at 6 in the evening, had dinner, went to bed, you know, got everything ready, but then hit the hay. At about 2.30 in the morning, a burst disc blew on one of the bottles. Oh, man. Talk, it woke every, the whole hotel the entire oh, no hotel. We all just I sprang out of bed, like literally 
start running to all the tanks. I'm, it doesn't even register. It's a burst disc. You're like, what the fuck? And you're trying, you're just grabbing valves. To, like we finally found it and realized, oh, it's a burst disc. It was a 40, thank God. And uh, took it outside and put it inside the car and locked, you know, shut the door. <laughs> That's all we could do. Anyway, it was kind of funny, but not so funny at the time trying to figure out which bottle blew. So that's why I said, you got 43 bottles in the back of your car. Hopefully you don't hit a bump or it doesn't get too hot back there and blow the burst discs in one of them. Now try to find, or you just sit there and listen to it. But Right, a valve gets rolled. Loud. Yeah, or a valve got rolled. That's what went through my mind, but I'm like, as I'm checking valves, I'm like, how, was somebody up fucking with it? What the hell's going on? For, that's the first thing I did was accuse these other two clowns of fucking with the bottles in the middle. That are of also sound asleep. <laughs> <laughs> you sleepwalking sons of bitches, what'd you do? I thought it was somebody who was playing a joke. Ned says, I left them at the table and began to load my gear between the stacks of tanks roped tightly together inside the van. Ten minutes later, Sheck emerged carrying a paper sack of groceries. About ready? Sure, I replied. Less than five minutes later, we were headed across West 110. Our long drive to Mante would take us nearly 1,500 miles across the southeastern states, through Houston, down the Rio Grande Valley where we would cross the border at Brownsville, and then 300 miles on into Mexico. I had not seen much of Sheck for the last few years. A cave diving photography project in Yucatan had occupied my last two summers. While Sheck had been busily involved with his deep cave diving and whitewater kayaking, during the Wakulla project, I spoke to him briefly. The next month, we shot some cave diving pictures for his autobiography to be published next year. I had heard about his big dives at Mante, but knew few details. Sheck called to ask if I would go with him to Mexico only three weeks before we were scheduled to leave. I said yes, thinking that the expedition south would involve a substantial support group. It wasn't until the week we left that I realized it was just the two of us driving down. We were to meet Mexican cave divers Sergio Zambrano and Angel Soto at Mante. They were driving north from Mexico City to make the rendezvous. Both were exceptional cave divers, but I realized that neither had the experience to help Sheck if an emergency occurred. It was only at this point that I started to comprehend the intricate web of problems that would face Sheck. There was no support for such a dive. Absolutely none. Not the Navy, not commercial diving companies. Not even the cave diving elite could be of the least assistance where he was going. Sheck would be a one-man show heading straight for no man's land where submersibles and diving bells couldn't go. If something were to happen, the show would be over. No rescue, not even a body recovery would be possible. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Sergio and Angel were experienced deep cave divers at the time. But, I mean, this is a time when going to almost 200 feet in a cave is a huge dive. I mean, this this really puts into light that, like, 
or really takes away like any sense of danger and adventure like I've had on any dive I've ever done in my life. <laughs> when you know you got your, you know, your Dan insurance card in your wallet. Right. And a staff, you know, people that can help you. Right. I, I, again, I mean, I mean, this is, I mean, th- this is still decades before, you know, anybody was doing like dives of this magnitude on rebreathers, let alone what, what he's about to do all on open circuit. As we drove past Tallahassee and headed toward Pensacola, Sheck began to tell me about the dive. After Johann Hassenmeyer's dive to 656 feet, I knew that helium was obviously the way to go. In late 1986, I made two practice dives on helium in Florida. The first was to 130 feet. The second was a 260-footer. Last April, Mary Ellen Eckhoff and I left for Mexico. After eight years, I was more than ready to extend the line deeper into the Manta system. Two days before the dive, we staged five tanks in the cave. I wasn't sure how deep I would go. I had decompression tables for 400 feet and extrapolations for even greater depths. My depth gauge was good to 500 feet. As it turned out, everything went well and I tied off when the gauge read 500 feet. Since they are calibrated for denser seawater, that meant 515 feet at Mante. And my feet were five feet deeper, so 520 feet. Over seven hours and 26 decompression stops later, I surfaced. Nothing to it, he laughed. <laughs> Nothing to it! <laughs> okay. What made you decide to go back after the 520-foot dive? Was it Hassenmeyer's record? Sheck said, yeah, it was the record. But besides that, Mante was still dropping, and I wanted to be the one to bottom it out. Mary Ellen and I went back in June, just two months later. I had made a few alterations in my decompression to help alleviate the oxygen toxicity symptoms. You know, Brando, the normal. (laughs) You (laughs) You know, know, muscular (laughs) twitching in my face and legs and slight tunnel vision I experienced during my previous dives. You know, the little stuff. This time, he said, I used less oxygen and two additional shallow water decompression stops were added. It took me 24 minutes to drop to 660 feet. Everything worked well, but it cost me 11 and one half hours of decompression time. Over 12 hours is too long to remain underwater. I became extremely uncomfortable, cold, weak, and hypoglycemic from the pre-dive liquid diet. My exposed hands and face became wrinkled, raw, and began to flake. At the time, I felt that I could have dived deeper, but I knew that I had reached my decompression limits. Ned says, you said you reached 660 feet? It sounds like you just went deep enough to beat Hassenmeyer's record. No, not at all, Sheck replied. The best way to end up dead on a deep dive is to go after a set number. First, you have to understand that I didn't know how deep I was, 
after I left my depth gauges at 515 feet. To figure my depth, I connected a pre-measured line to my previous line. At the deepest point, I tied off and cut the strand. And after surfacing, it was a simple matter to calculate my depth from the remaining length. When I decided to turn around, I had no idea if I was above or below Hasemeyer's depth. As it turned out, I was so close to his mark that I didn't even claim the record. So now you're heading back, I asked. Yeah, so now I'm heading back, he repeated. He's a calculated man. And he he knows that chasing the record is how people die and how people have been dying for for decades in the in the deep the deep air the deep dive record game you know that you know years ago we did that our 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 first i think big four part series was on that deep air record right and that's how the fatalities started lining up as everybody was pushing for the number well, let me ask you something. If he's not chasing the record, what is he chasing? He's chasing something. He's chasing the record. No, no, he just said I'm not chasing the record. <laughs> uh, can I tell you a little something? <laughs> he says, look, look, he says, says right, right here. here. He said right here, I no, not at all. I'm not chasing the record, but hold my beer while I go beat this record. (laughs) Hold my beer. (laughs) He's chasing the damn record. Whether you're like, I want to see how far a man can can go on scuba, that's chasing a record. Yeah, saying that I'm going to be the one to bottom it out, I get what you're saying. He's chasing the record. He knows somebody beat him. Right. Now, whether he's consciously admitting that he's, he's chasing a record. Now, now, is he, like, thumping his chest as he's chasing the record? I don't get that impression, but you're definitely uh, trying to push man's limits underwater on scuba. Yeah. And, and, and that's and I think called a record. He, I think he knows that, I mean, yeah. this, is the, this is the game that he plays, right? This, this is where the, the, the world of the, of the cave explorer is, and, and the only next thing is the record. How how deep can we go? How deep can and, and we I, go? I what does the, the record say right now? Yeah, well, I, well, I think I, in, push in some in some respects, it's a little bit of that's um, you know that's the consequence of wanting to go a little bit further. Is he's going to get the record? He wants to go further because nobody else has, which means he wants to achieve a new record a record meaning the limit we've hit he wants to be it with that we silently settled into the ride Sheck slid a cassette into the deck and soon we were absorbed into the sounds of his beloved beethoven we were 350 miles into the trip just west of mobile when we switched places i climbed behind the wheel and Sheck stretched out in the reclining passenger seat a light rain began to fall. I glanced over at Sheck. He was resting with his hands behind his head. Since our earlier conversation, we hadn't talked about the dive, but I couldn't get it out of my mind. Sheck would soon be asleep. This would be the last chance until morning to ask questions. 
How deep do you think you will be able to go on this trip? I asked suddenly. Sheck didn't answer for a while. Then, just as abruptly as I had asked the question, he answered, at least 700 feet, maybe more. Again, silence. I waited, but he didn't continue. I tried again. What about decompression? I'm using new tables, he replied. It was obvious that he would rather be with his own thoughts than in conversation, but I chose to persist. Whose tables are they? With this, Shaq relented and sat up, adjusting the seat to support his back. He said, Bill Hamilton's, the fellow from New York who did all the tables for the Wakulla Project. Ned said, have they ever been tested as deep as you're planning to go? Of course not. Who would test them? He answered. Did he say it like that? (laughs) (laughs) Of course not. Who would test them? Hassenmeyer, I retorted. And Sheck broke out into laughter. He was ready to talk. Oh, all you had to do was bring up old Hassenmeyer. That's like a poke in the bear. Hassenmeyer? Oh, you did not just say Hassenmeyer. So... Sheck goes on here to uh, kind of to lay out, uh, which for me is like the, the, the gem of this article, like uh, his mindset for this. And he says, I was maxed out on decompression during the 600-foot dive. When I finally got out of the water, I was wasted. I knew then that I would have to come up with a shorter schedule before I went deeper. And besides, I was losing confidence in the tables I used for my four previous dives. They were based on purloined commercial tables that I extrapolated to the point that I was concerned about their validity. Hamilton's DCAP program was not only more liberal than the tables I had been using, but it allowed me to custom tailor my gas blend. The few cave divers who are now using mixed gases are abandoning nitrogen altogether. My body seems to have a high nitrogen tolerance. So I chose to use Trimix during the deepest part of my dive, hoping that this would help me avoid helium's high-pressure nervous system syndrome and hypothermia. Using the computerized tables for this dive will require that I stage 16 bottles and carry four tanks. 11 different blends will be used. I will make 52 decompression stops, starting at 520 feet and ending with a half hour at the surface breathing oxygen. How long the stops take will depend on the descent time, the maximum depth, and how quickly I can get up from the deep water. The last variables can't be plugged in until I actually make the dive. And I glanced over at Sheck. He was again lost in thought, staring blankly into the night. It had been fascinating to listen to him discuss the facts and figures of the dive, but what I really wanted to hear about were the things that go on inside his head when he is buried under several hundred feet of water, inside a rock crevice, on the very edge of life, and still going down. How are you going to decide when you've gone deep enough, I asked. Fear as if you've been waiting patiently for such a question to be asked. It's a mind game. 
the cave and the odds are out to get me, and it's obvious that they will catch up with me sometime. That I am alive today is a miracle. To extend my winning streak, I must spend hundreds of hours thinking of every possible thing that can go wrong. I do what I can to prevent problems during my dive preparations. I mix my own gases. I check every piece of equipment over and over, and I memorize each aspect of the dive plan. The dive itself is like hunting a tiger in a thicket. Fear keeps me alert. I am constantly attuned to every feeling in my body, every function of my equipment, and every happening in the surroundings. Off guard for a minute, and the tiger is on my back. I've learned to handle the fear, but what I call controlled paranoia, a combination of meditation and experience. The meditation clears and settles my mind allowing me to stay at a high state of alertness and continually aware of my body's reaction to the stress. My experience has taught me how vulnerable I am. During my 23 years cave diving, I've survived every life-threatening situation. Bends, panicked buddy, being lost, silt-outs, light failures, out of air, line entanglement, Trapped in restrictions, on and on. When something goes wrong, I must immediately rein in the fear and let experience take over. Problems can occur, but an error in judgment is deadly. He said, from the dive start, the idea is to get down as fast as possible without plummeting out of control. I use gravity and pull on the wall to keep from using my legs, which will increase my exertion. While dropping in the deepest part of the shaft, I am in a high-risk zone. At such depths, each breath causes the pressure gauge needle to drop unbelievably. Like a pilot constantly picking out alternate landing sites for emergencies, I'm always looking for a projection to tie off. If anything goes wrong, my experience takes over. The problem must be solved on the first attempt, or I immediately abort the dive. If the dive goes as planned, the turnaround point will be dictated by my downtime, the amount of gas expended, and an indefinable coalition of sensory perceptions that tells me to get the hell out. After finishing the statement, Sheck then wished me good night and crawled across the equipment to the back of the van where he constructed a platform bed over the tank storage. To save time, we had planned to drive straight through to Mexico. I was to drive the night shift so that Sheck wouldn't have to alter his regular sleeping habits before the dive. A mellow, sensuous sax from an all-night New Orleans station kept me company through Louisiana and into Texas. We streaked through Houston at 4 a.m. and were ready to head south toward the border when he crawled back to the front. How about breakfast, amigo? Or do you want to have a little drive a bit further, he joked. We pulled into the first diner I saw. My body was still on autopilot and buzzing from fatigue after the eight-hour ordeal. Sheck was making an issue of how well he had slept and as we walked into the restaurant lobby where a set of brightly lit arcade games glittered against the wall. Hey, amigo, just the thing for you. 
He stepped over to a machine and dropped a quarter into the slot. An animated car race leaped into action, careening from side to side at a dizzying pace down an endless highway. As I stumbled into the dining room, heading for the first vacant booth, I could still hear echoes of Sheck's laughter coming from the lobby. So he brings up some really good points about control of panic, or how he put it, a controlled paranoia. Yeah, right. I think anybody who's been doing any technical diving to any degree has encountered a time where they've had to, um, you know, you have to go over, what am I going to do if this happens, or what would I do if this failed, or we got lost, or the visibility went to shit, or I lost my partner, or I lost a whole bottle of gas. Just those kind of things are constantly going going through one's mind. And if you let it get ahead of you, it'll really do a number on you. Right, for the... For the bad as well as for the good. I mean, there's a, there's a point of over analysis that acts that analysis paralysis where it can yeah. cripple people. I think it's a tightrope line. I think it's I think it's very easy to fall to the other side of it, of that no doubt control about paranoia it. I mean, line. I mean, I mean, I read through a lot of it. In in many ways, you know, you can see the the OCD there of. I'm mixing everything myself. I'm setting everything up myself. You know, I mean, I'm sure everything, you know, you you talk about like the earlier, like the, the cluttered mess of dive equipment everywhere, like in his double wide trailer, at, you know, house, mm-hmm. his dive gear. I bet you like every tank valve is pointing, you know, north, northeast exactly, you know, to uh, to, to the exact spot. Everything is Maybe. dialed in perfectly, you know, of, of what he's what he's thinking and going and he's going through it over and over and over and over in his head. But, and I I think a lot of people when they're new into diving and they're new into these things do that a lot, but he's got the understanding that he knows that there's only so much of that, that at some point, if something does go wrong, he's got to let go of his brain and let his experience take over. Again, keep it in check. It's a controlled paranoia. But I think that if he's anything like me, I don't like the lack of control with things to this degree. For example, I wouldn't, it's very rare I let someone else mix up my gas for a deep dive. And I definitely wouldn't just let them check my gas. So what I'm getting at, though, is relying on people to do these extremely crucial or critical tasks in the dive preparation. All it does is make you make your mind wander into this uh, area of did they of do it correctly uh, i hope they did. Yeah, yeah i hope it isn't fucked up i hope so in order to make sure that nothing is fucked up in that degree or in, in that area you do everything yourself so that takes takes a little bit of that paranoia and tames it and then of course we talk about being on the actual dive and uh all of the constant you know round robin of thoughts of what could go wrong what do i have to monitor you know right. what's and the situation got, and, and the reality is in 2023 i mean you have a list of a number of people you could do a dive with right even you know to the to the level of your training and experience and comfort you've got a few people that you could 
call up and say, hey, let's go do this dive with. Shaq really is alone. There's nobody. Well, yeah. There's yeah. absolutely not one person that he, one, could do this. That's what I mean, like we were talking last episode. I mean, a lot of people look at it and go, oh, you know, he's a solo diver. He's diving way too deep. He's cave diving. Of course he died. But where I was saying, nah, you, you can't call this a cave dive. You, I mean, I can't call this just a deep dive because it's so far beyond that. He's literally the only one that he can count on. Yeah, for the vast majority of the dive. I mean, he, he does have some help as he comes to the shallows, thankfully. I mean, that's whole, that's the whole point of having a some kind of support crew, <laughs> you know. You've got somebody in the shallows should you have lost a bottle or two of gas for your deco. Well, at least you can get a replacement, whereas if you were completely alone at the for the entire thing, I think you'd really have to put in a bunch of safeguards to make sure that all of those possibilities are kind of covered. And one of the biggest possibility, a loss of a... Uh, Standalone bottle of gas that you needed. That's huge. Uh, yeah. Until <laughs> until we evolve into having gills, we uh, we you need gas, and, and no matter how great and state of the art your equipment is, whatever you're diving, you know you're still dependent on the you know the the reality that something can go wrong, and you can lose one of those. So you have to have that contingent. Contingency. You know, that, that contingency yeah. in place and, and that's like for you and i we got you know one bottle we're gonna switch to but here he's going through 11 11 different mixes over 50 50 stops to make along the way i mean this is uh it's crazy man crazy stuff ned says we crossed the border at noon it was always exciting being in mexico a country i learned to associate with great pleasure during my dozens of trips there, I had acquired a penchant for the land and people, but not for customs. There we were, packed to the pavement with dozens of elaborate underwater equipment, trying our best to act nonchalant like ordinary tourists out for a weekend's fun. The first official who looked in the van called another, who <laughs> called another, well, yeah. who called another, and in the meantime... Shaq was inside, efficiently going from desk to desk, getting our papers approved. By the time an inspector came inside to report the strange load, Shaq had all the documents signed and stamped. A mini-summit was held in the foyer. We suddenly spoke no Spanish. Just kept saying, scuba holiday, scuba holiday, whenever one of the inspectors glanced our way. $20 later, we were heading out of Matamoros. The highway's first 150 miles passed through sparse, flat, agricultural land similar to southern Texas. Then, in the distance, we saw the mountains begin to rise. This was the emergence of the wild terrain that inspired B. Traven's classic Treasure of the Sierra Madres a bold frontier for hardy spirits where fortune and tragedy coexist only a heartbeat apart. We spent the night in Victoria, choosing to wait for the freshness of morning before tackling the 100 miles of twisting mountain roads that wind their way to Ciudad Monte. When we woke, 
The morning sun was still red on the mountains, and the air was cool. We set out early so that we would be unhurried during the difficult drive. It was Easter Sunday. Mexico was dressed in its finest. All along the roadway, well-groomed families followed the sounds of church bells to early services. The night's rest readied us for the mountain road, but as expected, progress was slow. It took three hours to reach Ciudad Monte. Sheck drove straight through the town without stopping. At the southern Glorieta, we veered off onto a narrow road that led toward a distant mountain range. It was the end of the dry season, and Sheck was anxious to learn if the lack of rain tempered the spring's flow. The volume of water that surged up the crevice was a critical factor in how deep he would be able to dive. As we approached, the dark mountain bluff began to show detail. Large runs of limestone, separated by dense foliage, shot straight up from the plain. The closer we drove, the higher it grew until the crest could no longer be seen through the windshield. We paralleled the cliff for a quarter mile before arriving at the spring. While walking down to the water, we saw two dry-suited divers with fins in hand coming up from the embankment. Sheck immediately recognized the men. They were Sergio and Angel, returning from their first dive into Mante. Warm greetings were exchanged while the two cave divers removed their cumbersome gear. Sheck led me to where I could get a view of the spring cave. There it was, exactly 1,464 miles from Sheck's front door. A cave entrance right out of a Spielberg movie. Looking down from the cliff, we watched the water pour from the mountain. It rushed from the bottom half of the cave entrance into a blue spring pool 50 yards wide. Although it was only mid-morning, several bathers already sat cooling themselves on the rock's basin. We left the spring for town, following Sergio and Angel's jeep. After checking into a hotel, we ate lunch together. That morning, they dived the cave to 180 feet. The visibility was 50 feet and the flow moderate. Conditions were good for Sheck's dive. And this does sound like, uh, I mean, uh, what's going through my head is like like a old, like, spaghetti western movie, cowboy movie, you know, in the out in the deserty plains of <laughs> Mexico, you know. They should have like a cool Clint Eastwood uh, long trench coat. Straight brimmed hat, you know, a cigar, the little skinny cigar right. he had. He used to, a little cigarette hanging out, and uh, maybe a bottle of whiskey in their hand, and a six gun in their other hand. Instead, they've got a scuba tank, and they're wearing a dry suit. <laughs> they, but they could have the cowboy hat, the Clint Eastwood they cowboy hat. They could have hat. a cowboy hat. They could be, uh, you know, I noticed they went to the diner. They didn't go to a cantina. Like, you and I would have stopped at a cantina. <laughs> well, you and I aren't going for the world record. We're just a couple of schmucks. These guys seem to have their shit together. <laughs> Sergio and Angel are expedition men in the purest sense. A pair that goes to exotic places to do extraordinary things. Himalayas, Peru, skydiving, rock climbing. And for the past five years, cave diving. They do such things for no other reason than the spirit moves them. 
during the difficult process of setting up and breaking down his dive, Shaq could have no better help. Both men worked diligently, helping to stage the 16 tanks in the cave and were always available to do what needed to be done. One of their strengths is knowledge. Immediately, they questioned Shaq about how he was going to put together his dive. After lunch, Shaq made the decision to move the dive up a day. We had arrived at Mante ahead of schedule. The weather was splendid, and he was anxious to get started. The change of plans meant that he had to make a difficult 330-foot dive that evening to stage the deepest tank. And Brando, I think that's a good spot for us to stop this episode, and we're going to have to make this into three parts because we haven't even gotten to the dive yet. No, and it should be three parts because there's a lot of, a lot of stuff to cover. We're gonna we're gonna leave it with him just doing a just a boring little basic, you know, three hundred and thirty foot dive <laughs> just to just to get things ready for what he's about to do. Right, and just to, I mean that's three hundred and thirty feet. You're at eleven addas, which on an eighty for for just to you know. For the folks to get an idea of how quickly you're going through gas, an aluminum 80, you have less than seven minutes, really. Less than seven minutes, probably closer to six minutes. That tank is is sucked dry. There's a vacuum you're pulling on it. So you don't have much, and that's just at 330 feet. So when we start talking as we're going into the dive, and we'll start talking about how quickly the gas is being used on an 80. And right and where he's going, where he's about to go. I mean, it's a couple of it's a the an 80 is a couple of breaths. Yes, you're breathing like 15 cubic feet a minute. 16 cubic feet a minute. And you have 80 of that if in an 80, you have roughly 80, it's 77 really. But come on. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing stuff. You got 5 minutes. <laughs> You've got 5 minutes if you're decent. Well, for the people out there, what's coming up is Sheck's record deep dive. And hey, Brando, you know what else is coming up? Valentine's Day. How could I forget? Wrote, I wrote you a poem. Oh, you did. Me? Roses are red, <laughs> violets are blue. And our friends at Manscaped have a gift for you. You know, Manscaped is now selling beard products. That's right, everybody. Listeners of the Great Dive Podcast, the leaders in grooming are revolutionizing the men's hygiene game once again with the new Beard Hedger Pro Kit. I know you've been using yours. I mean, you look strikingly handsome, Brando. Well, but I appreciate that. (laughs) It must be that cordless trimmer with the rotary wheel and 20 haircutting links that have you quaffed so perfectly. That and the uh, the beard balm and beard oil leaves your beard soft. I mean, my wife has had to deal with me having a beard for a good portion of our marriage. She has to put up with that stubble. And with uh, the help of our friends at Manscaped, I'm getting a little extra snuggling, if you know what I'm saying, thanks to the softness of my beard and the fresh smell. Well, and you're going to need it. Because, uh, you know, you want to be looking extra lovely this Valentine's Day by using that new beard hedger. And even better, people, 
You can save 20% off and get free shipping by going to manscaped.com and using our code TGDP. Free shipping, 20% off, and you look and smell marvelous, darlings. From the first impression to the last, you're going to love it. And everyone who sees your improved facial hair game will love it, too. No one likes a weird beard. So say goodbye to all your stubble trouble and tame your mane this Valentine's Day, people. Don't forget, 20% off free shipping with the code TGDP at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and the code TGDP. Spice up V-Day this year with Manscaped's Beard Hedger. One stroke, one guard, 20 lengths. And also, head over to uh, theabyscoffeeco.com. Grab yourself a little bag of the Kraken. We got a note from Angie saying that her number one customer base for online sales over the holiday season and through the month of January was people using that TGDP10 code. So thank you, everybody, for getting over and and giving our friend Angie some support. Um, I'm sure you guys are digging it. I mean, it's the coolest-looking bags of coffee you're ever going to get and the the greatest taste in coffee. Roasting them right out there in wonderful old Michigan, uh, the Abyss Coffee Co. She's got a lot of great different blends out there nowadays so get over there and check out some of brando's favorite the kraken and some teas now too that mysterious mermaid is that what it was called yeah that mystical mermaid tea mystical mermaid i mean like a, for like a little afternoon you know pick me up a, something light you don't want a big heavy full cup of coffee um I and mean, it's a nice uh it's got like a real strawberryish kind of a uh flavor to it i mean it's really good stuff so give a give a go over there too. And Brando, we're not signing logbooks. We we got a we've got the the deepest biggest part of the dive coming up, which is as it should be uh, alone in its own episode, as it should be, because there's a lot to cover. I mean, folks that like diving and the the technical aspects of diving are going to like this one. It, it's going to blow your mind. <laughs> I mean, it blows my mind. I've 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 read it a dozen times now and it it, 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 every time i just look at these numbers they're just unbelievable hold on to your snorkels everybody grab your split fins this is gonna get good glue your split fins back together folks because we're still swimming all right we will see you guys next week so do you know what a uh glorietta is glorietta no, senor. No. Well, the only reason it's a, it's a roundabout, and I bring it up because we're getting them everywhere here. People are having issues with them, <laughs> to say the least. Oh yeah, they're everywhere nowadays. Yeah, that's what that meant. What? <laughs>